Well, hello and welcome to Creation.com Talk. I'm Dr. Robert Carter. I'm joined with my dear friend, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, and today we are talking about a subject that has vexed theologians and scientists for thousands of years. This is the geocentrism debate. Yeah, good day, everyone. Uh, it's important to realize that globe Earth, not flat Earth, globe Earth geocentrism was a ruling astronomical paradigm for about 2,000 years. I mean, it starts from probably Aristotle and then went right up to Kepler and Newton before it was finally overturned. Also, we have to understand that the, the reformers, the ancient theologians, the philosophers, they were following the ruling science of the day. The science told us that everything goes around the earth. That's what it appears from first principles. It took a long time to figure out that that wasn't true. It's interesting, though, that you do have some dissenters, like even in the, in the medieval period, you have Buridan, uh, Nicola Reim, who is a bishop, and Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa, who is second only to the Pope, and they actually were seriously uh, challenging the idea that the earth was the center, or that other things could also be considered the center, and they were people in good standing. They weren't persecuted by the church. This is in the 14th century or so. And interestingly, right around that same time, Christianity started building massive cathedrals across Europe. And in a lot of those cathedrals were things included that allowed them to do astronomical observations. Specifically, a lot of cathedrals had a hole in the roof somewhere mm. that pointed south so they could capture sunlight. And an image of the sun would be projected on the floor of the cathedral on a line. And they could do for year after year after year astronomical measurements that was actually the background leading to the rejection of the idea that the Earth is the center. It came from Christianity. Well, there's meridian lines in the cathedrals because the cathedrals were the best buildings of the, of the Middle Ages, possibly of all time. They're just quite amazing buildings, very stable buildings. So you can get, they, these are the best astronomical instruments until quite late in the development of telescopes. The earliest telescopes had nothing on the meridian lines uh, until quite late, several hundred years later. And it's really, really fascinating looking at those meridian lines. Now, I haven't seen one yet, but my bucket list, on my bucket list, is a trip to Europe to visit as many of those as I can find. Mm. I know they still exist, and they're right there on the floor, and most people walk right over them without even realizing what they're seeing. So, Jonathan, mm -hmm. we've heard a lot of this debate. We've spent hours and hours and hours working on documents to support um, the modern view and arguing with people who hold the older view. Mm. And there's a strain that we see in a lot of all this. And it's an idea that maybe paganism was driving this idea and that people were trying to elevate the sun to some center of importance as if the sun was going to be worshipped or something like that. Well, this is totally anachronistic because uh, going right back to Aristotle, the earth was the lowest place in the universe where all the, the dregs fell naturally. So the heavens were special. The further away you were from the center, the better you were. So in fact, going from geo to helio was actually a promotion, not a, not a demotion. Okay, and you look at Dante's Divine Comedy, well, where was uh, Satan found? He was found right in the middle of the, of the center of the round earth. This is about the 12th century, uh, Satan in the center of a globe. And the further away he went, the, the higher the heavens were, the more exalted they were. Yeah, now granted, that's not necessarily biblical Christianity, but it is the philosophy of the day. Mm. And if we compare this to the philosophy of the day, we can realize no, no one was worshiping the sun. Well, see, see, when you look at it, the, the, the science said geocentrism, and when you look at the way some people criticize Copernicus, you look at Luther, he said that this guy was turning astronomy upside down, so the motivation was, oh, this, this guy's trying to find something new to make himself look smart by turning thousands of years of astronomy upside down. You see, the, the thing is, Copernicus was going against the science. 
and therefore, because the Bible was, was accurate, science had to be, that he was undermining the Bible as a secondary effect of undermining the science. You know, I've been to Copernicus's hometown in Tehran, Poland, mm-hmm. and there's a, a, a statue and, a, and uh, a plaque to him right there, and it says uh, in Latin, Copernicus, the man who stopped the sun and moved the earth. Really cool little testimony to him. But he was working in a very hostile environment. Um, he did have supporters. There were high-ranking church people that supported financially his work, and yet he knew that the most of the scientists of the day did not like what he was going to say, so he published his book posthumously. He had his book all ready to go, and after he died, that's when it was published. So there's a lot of politics involved in this and a lot of angst, and it's interesting as a mirror of today how secular science can sometimes slow down scientific progress because of human, human personalities. What's interesting, who actually encouraged uh, Copernicus to publish was, was Reticus, who was a protege of, of Melanchthon, who was an ally of Martin Luther, the reformer. Okay, so you had enc- uh, church people encouraging Copernicus to publish, but he knew that he was going against science. Copernicus spent night after night after night looking at the stars and measuring the positions of planets and stars. And as he's taking all these measurements, he's realizing that the data much more easily fit the idea that the sun is the middle of the solar system and all the planets go around the sun. Mm -hmm. All right, now let's go to a man named Galileo. Galileo postdates Copernicus. He comes later, Mm -hmm. maybe even 80 years later before he's really starting to publish a lot of material. Mm -hmm. And Galileo is famous in this debate because people were telling him he was wrong. Did the church, in fact, suppress Galileo? Well, again, you can probably find about 10 astronomers from Copernicus to Galileo who supported the uh, heliocentric view. The vast majority supported the, the traditional view of the Earth at the center. In fact, it's, it's quite interesting to see that Galileo was a very good friend of the man who became the Pope. Yes. And the Pope encouraged him to publish. Yes, but what changed the Pope's mind? What did Galileo foolishly do? Well, basically Galileo insulted him because he wrote his, his, uh, his theory in a book of dialogue between a heliocentrist and a geocentrist, and he put the Pope's words in the mouth of the geocentrist whom he named Simplicio, which means the fool. You see, so the Pope felt betrayed. Yes, politics. Politics and papal politics, yep. Not science. You can't just go and insult a bunch of people when you're trying to make a point. Galileo was really foolish in that way. But not only that, most of the evidences that Galileo was trying to use to say that the Earth moves around the sun were in fact wrong. He's trying to explain tides based on the the Earth revolving. It's like, no, tides are explained by the moon. Yeah, well, Galileo thought the moon idea, that was occultic, that was ridiculous. Occult means a hidden force. He didn't, he thought that was a silly idea, even though people like the Venerable Bede in the 8th century realized the moon was the cause of the tides. Galileo had, not, had nothing on that. He, he said it was the Earth's rotation that did it. No, sorry. His idea would have tides only once per day instead of twice per day. Yeah. And so also, not only are we seeing politics, we're also seeing the fallibilities of the human mind. Mm-hmm. Scientists struggling with information, trying to conceptualize it and trying to, to argue with themselves and fight cultural trends and contravening data and put all things into, a, into this big ball that we call the geocentric theory or the heliocentric theory. The thing is, heliocentrism isn't even the right word. No, it's not. No. 
the sun is not the center of the solar system. In fact, the sun, because of Jupiter being so massive, the sun actually wobbles in the center because Jupiter and Saturn, as they move around, they cause the sun to wobble. It's, it's a gravitationally balanced system. It's not a heliocentric system. And that has to wait till Newton. But yes, indeed, if we had aliens trying to find life, uh, planets around our sun, they would notice the sun's wobbling and realize there's planets moving it. So the sun is not the center. The, cen- uh, the center is actually the Barry center, which means the center of mass of the whole system. That's the real center. It's close enough to the sun for most practical purposes, but the, the technical term would be Barry-centric solar system. It's the center of mass, not the sun. But doesn't the Bible say that the Earth is the center of the universe? Doesn't the Bible trump all of the science and all these astronomical measurements? I mean, isn't it clear when you read Scripture that it talks about sunrise and sunset and all these other things? It sure sounds like the Earth is the middle, according to the Bible. The Bible's true. I want to believe the Bible. Oh, me too. Yeah. So, isn't the Earth the center? Well, I mean, don't we say sunrise and sunset today? Because it's quite awkward to say, well, the, the Earth has rotated, so our line of sight to the sun has become tangential to the horizon. It's quite awkward to say that. Yes, it is. I, I stumble over it. but So I say sun, sunrise and sunset, even though I'm not a geocentrist. And that's what everyone says today. In fact, just about every single one of our mapping programs, online, GPS, satellites, even old-fashioned standard maps, you're not using the sun as a reference point when you're looking at a map. You're using fixed points on the earth as reference points because the human brain can't say, oh, I'm going to go from Italy to France and figure out how far away I am from the sun and my angle of whatever. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. So we have fixed references all the time. And we use this phenomenological language all the time, constantly, because it's the way we communicate. Yeah, well, the, the uh, sat-nav or, or the uh, GPS uses the, your car as your reference frame and all the roads and streets move around you because it makes you the center of the universe. Yes, it does, actually. Okay, so if the Bible uses words like sunrise and sunset, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that the sun moves around the earth? It's just referring to our, our reference frame, just as I say, um, you're following a car and you might uh, tell the driver who's, got, who's tailgating, pull back a bit. But what you mean is slow down, but as far as you're, you're, you're using the car in front of you as a reference frame, and so from that car's reference frame, you're saying pulling back from that car, you're not even using a geocentric frame there or a heliocentric frame. You're using the car in front of you as a reference frame. You pointed out a very interesting reference frame uh, reference in the book of Acts that I had never seen before. What was that? Oh, it's, uh, you have to go to either a very literal translation or to the original Greek. Acts 27, 27 uh, says, Towards the middle of the night, the sailors began sensing land to be drawing near to them. So what you call this is actually nauticocentric. It's the center of uh, the reference frame is the ship they're on. So from that reference frame, the, the land is drawing towards them as opposed to you're moving towards the land. That's what the Greek says. Very clear in the Greek. That's really cool. Just the fact that there's a reference frame argument like that, a relative reference frame argument. They're talking about what they saw. Here comes land. It looks like the land is moving. Of course, they knew the land wasn't moving. Yep. Everyone knows that, but you just describe it that way because that's the way we talk. Okay, but doesn't the Bible also say things like the earth shall not be moved? And it also, yeah. And if the earth shall not be moved, mm-hmm. that means the earth doesn't move, right? Well, except, that, of course, you got the righteous shall not be moved. Same uh, Hebrew word, Psalm 121. So righteous shall not be moved. 
Um, the psalmist also says, I shall not be moved. Does that mean he's in a straitjacket? It doesn't, it's not talking about that, is it? No. So again, you have to take scripture in its context. You have to look at the grammar. You have to look at the, the genre. You have to look at the surrounding phraseology. If you take it out of context, the Bible can say an awful lot of things that aren't true, like, you know, God is an all-consuming fire, or as the rubber bell will be like a signet on God's right hand, and all sorts of things like that. You can derive a lot of really fallacious theology from, so we have to be careful. And here, clearly, Mm -hmm. the earth shall not be moved is not a reference to a fixed earth. Just like the psalmist shall not be moved, the righteous shall not be moved. It's, it's different. It's, it shall not tremble, shall not quake, shall not be in fear, depending on the context of that word. So, since the Bible really doesn't say one way or another, in fact, if anything, the Bible says we are flexible about what reference frame we can use. Though the very fact that in Acts 27 27 uses a different frame from Earth is a precedent for our choosing the best reference frame for what we need. Okay. So, we don't have a giant theological conundrum. We do have a lot of philosophical, early scientific arguing. Mm. Let's go through the, the, the process here. Mm-hmm. Back in, you know, way back in time, ancient Greek, ancient Roman, biblical era, we have uh, Ptolemy. Yeah. And we have other people, and they're saying that the earth is a center. And then they're looking at stars, and they're watching stars and planets. But planets do weird things, because like Mars will go forward and go backwards and go forward again. So... They have a simple idea. Everything goes around the Earth. And then they make an observation that doesn't fit. What do they do? Well, they make what's called an epicycle, don't they? Because ep- uh, they've got a circle, but epicycles are circle upon a circle. And they say the planet's actually riding this epicycle. And as the circle turns, it sometimes moves backwards. You see, that's where, why uh, we see retrograde motion, the backward motion of planets from time to time goes on this epicycle. Can that be predicted from the basic theory? It seems to be based, uh, well, we find here's a weird motion. Let's add another epicycle to explain this motion. It doesn't predict anything. We, all we can do is tweak it to, to fit the observation. It won't predict anything new. Though. Yes. And if you look at the moon, the moon doesn't always go through, go through the sky at the same rate. The moon's orbit is not always as circular. Sometimes it's more elliptical. Sometimes uh, the moon is closer. Sometimes it's further away. Sometimes the orbit is rounder. And sometimes you can see not just the face of the moon, but you can see around one side or the other based on how fast it's spinning. So each one of those things, they had to come up with an ad hoc, oh, well, that's because of another epicycle. Oh, that's because of another epicycle on an epicycle. And they just kept adding and adding and adding more terms. And none of those things are predicted from the basic idea. Mm. They're accessory things that are added after the fact to try to keep the theory alive. So we have that, and then we have all these cathedral measurements, and then we have Copernicus, and then we have Galileo, mm-hmm. and then we have... I suppose Kepler, right? Kepler, who says ellipses. Very important, yeah. And then we have Newton. What did Newton do? Well, it's interesting that Kepler's uh, ellipses proved to be far better at predicting than anything that had gone on before. That's why they were accepted. Not because of any conspiracy against the Bible. Kepler was a devout Lutheran. You look at his, his devout writings all over the place. I mean, um, but he just realized he could predict things far better with elliptical orbits with the sun as a focus. So it's really a heliofocal system, not a heliocentric system. 
Uh, so it predicted anything better. But then Newton, uh, his three laws of motion and law of gravity, found that the Kepler's laws would fall out of that. Yes. So Newton says, all objects in the universe are attracting every other object. And the amount of attraction depends upon the mass of the two objects and how far apart they are. Yeah, inverse square law, yes. And once you have that, you can take two objects in space and the, you can have them mutually rotate around one another. But the large one, like the sun, is not going to move very much because it's so large compared to something like the Earth. Mm. And once you have that, you have a gravitational attraction, you have a distance, you have a velocity, you can explain all the motions of all the objects in a solar system with no epicycles. So it's really quite amazing. His laws of science were just revolutionary, the most important laws probably ever thought of. Yeah, I, I, I say that um, Newton's law of gravity is the biggest engine of scientific prediction in human history. Scientific prediction? How do you mean? Well, we send a satellite out into space. Mm -hmm. We know exactly what it's going to do. We know exactly where it's going to go based on its velocity, how close it gets to Mars or Jupiter or whatever. We know beforehand, we can calculate, okay, we have to do this, 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 and this, and this, and we can get this probe to arrive at Pluto. Even if you have to zing around Jupiter a couple of times to get it to go a little faster, you can predict all these things in the universe. Or how about this one? We have this wonderful dynamic model without a lot of ad hoc explanations. It's very simple. You start off with this very simple formula, and you can do lots of explaining of things. Like, See, my very educated mother just served. Those are the known planets. And then Uranus is discovered by observation. I think you said you told me it was Herschel that did that. And then we have this planet called Uranus. And we know it's far away from the sun. And we know it, it's orbiting very slowly. But it had gone about three quarters of the way around its orbit before scientists realized that there were problems with the path that this planet was taking. Hmm. After factoring in the gravitational attraction to Jupiter and Saturn, this planet, wait a minute, there's another planet. And someone wrote the Berlin Observatory, an astronomer, he said, point your telescope right there in the sky. And they did that, and that night, Neptune was discovered. So this, this scientific engine of predictability, they took planetary data, and they used it to find an un known planet, an invisible planet. You can't see it with the naked eye. It's not easy to find a faint planet way out on the edge of the solar system, but that's exactly what they did in this case because of Newton's laws. So you couldn't have done it with Ptolemy because you find, okay, Uranus, is, is, its motion's a bit funny. Oh, let's put another epicycle on it to explain it. Exactly. You would never predict Newton from that, but you could with Newton's laws. So uh, that's why it's so important to have a dynamic model where you've got forces as opposed to a kin kinematic model where you're just describing motion. And if there's anything wrong with the motion, I'll just add some more descriptions to it. No prediction. Well, let's summarize this. That the issue of uh, geocentrism versus heliocentrism is not a science versus religion issue. It's always a science versus science issue. Correct. And the Bible actually is equivocal. It doesn't tell you one way or the other. Yes. So let's go to the real history and real biblical interpretation and not be swayed by, by this um, pseudoscientific mythology that's around the topic. And if you've enjoyed this, please dig into the voluminous information we have on creation.com. And the articles that Dr. Sarfati and I have written are comprehensive and fascinating and very interesting as far as science is concerned. You'll probably learn a lot. 
Just go to creation.com. You can type in geocentrism. You can type in flat earth if you want to. One article refuting absolute geocentrism. Another article where we uh, refuted our detractors because the first article, we didn't quite do it to the satisfaction of the, the geocentrists. So we wrote another response to their response to our article. There's also information on Galileo, like the Galileo Quadrant Centennial Myth First Fact, the truth about the Galileo Affair, and again, a flat earth and other nonsense, plus a couple of other long flat earth articles that are there if you really want to get into the really fringe areas of conspiracy theory. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time for another fascinating episode of creation.com talk. <laughs>